Hello, beloved listeners. We are Octavia's Parables, reading Wild Seed, which is the first book in the Patternist series. And I am your co-host, Adrian Marie Brown. And I'm Toshi Regan. And um, we are on chapter three this week, chapter three. And before we jump into the reading, Toshi, is there anything that you want to announce? Um, you know, I can always announce that these, uh, parables are going back on the road and we are going to be hitting several cities. We're going to be in Boston. We're going to be in Champaign-Urbana. We're going to be in Ann Arbor and in DC and maybe a couple more places. I'm really excited. If you are in Champaign-Urbana, they have an eight library collaboration on a city read of Parable of the Sower. And that has been wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. And there's a a great conversation between me and Adrian and um, Stacy Robinson. We with the artist. Yeah, (laughs) it was wonderful. It was so good. And um, that's up on the, uh, if you look at um, Cranert, center.com and then you look for parable path see yeah. you um you'll find this conversation is available to watch really really cool and we'll put the link in our show notes for all of this stuff and my announcements to add to that one are you know Tosh and I were just laughing because we're like we are making so much content these days for people but I have just created a YouTube channel, uh, an Adrian Marie Brown YouTube channel to gather different talks and events that I've been a part of. And the first things that are on there is the holding change interview series that I did on Instagram with all of the different contributors uh, to the holding change book that came out earlier this year. And then our conversation with Alexis is also up there. So people can go, if you missed that, it's a beautiful conversation that we had kind of reflecting on the first two seasons of this podcast, uh, which were deep dives into Octavia E. Butler's parable series, parables, duology. Mm. Um, So you can go and check those out. And then my first novella, Grievers, is out in the world and people are reading it and it's thrilling, um, exciting. (laughs) And I'm doing a bunch of events around it and we'll probably be gathering those events also for the YouTube channel. But so far I've talked with Sarita McFadden. I'll be talking with Tananarive Duke, Casey Lehman. Imani Perry, Lottie Spady, I'm very excited. It's like a lot of beautiful conversations and there's some more that'll be coming, but we're just taking our time moving, moving at the pace of life these days. So yeah, lots to indulge in, lots to dive into. And now we're moving into this wild seed journey and Toshi, let's hear it. What happens here? Well, chapter three, I just wrote at the top of the page, light a candle. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know how, how y'all are doing about conversations around even as a, a work of of fiction around our ancestors being captured and enslaved and 
But if you have sensitivities to some of these things, you might want to light your candle and get your glass of water. And that's right. You know, because I'm like light a candle or like a hundred candles. Um, yeah. So we in this uh, chapter three, we get to learn more about Doro and and how he is with his bodies. And what we learn right off the bat is that he really he's in a good mood after he changes bodies. And especially if he gets to change bodies like more than once really quickly. This is this is really cool. He really likes that. And they're traveling and they're going on this journey and they're in the canoe and they're going towards basically two things are happening. One is that ultimately they are going to end up at Doro's ship. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, he is still very, very much wanting to know what happened to his seed village. Yes. And he wants to understand what that is and what happened to his people and where they might be. He just, this is like his number one thing. And you're starting to get a sense of like how wide a system he has. So right. he walks around in these different bodies, but he goes to the same places and he operates with the same people mostly, unless, yeah. you know, and so he, they're, they're on land and Anyamu is definitely not like understanding what is going on. Yeah. She is about to see like white people. She's about to see chained black people. Yeah. Um, and when she arrives, they are in the process of branding people. So before she even gets to the shoreline, she knows something is very, very wrong. And she has fear. She has all of these things. And then she meets like just white people in states of being that are horrific because one, they don't look well. Um, But two, they are branding black people of all ages. And and she's been like told about white people that she's going to meet these people and they might have yellow mm-hmm. hair and they have white skin and this and this and this. So they first uh, go up on to a person named um, Bernard Daly. He has three black wives and he has several, what she says, half breed children. And he apparently has a strong resistance to numerous local diseases. And this is how we are introduced to this person who is in the process of branding people. And there's an interesting exchange of like this person understanding who Doro is because he thinks he's somebody that he's not. And there's this this whole thing and everything seems to resonate with the eyes with Doro, the sound of his voice. He'll be like, you know me, you think you know me. And he'll, he'll get the person to understand that whoever he thought he was, he isn't, or whoever he thought he wasn't, he is. It's, yeah. it's very, it's very interesting. Ananyu is, is experiencing all of this. And he, as they've been traveling, he's starting to lay the groundwork for her next steps. So he's been talking about the big water. And, um, you know, my mom and I did this uh, series, um, Africans in America. We did uh-huh. the music for it. And it was really amazing. It was a PBS series. And it had four separate directors. And my mom and I did the whole, like, you know, database of music that would be used for each director. And my mom did this song called Big Water. And she was like the first time that she that you see Big Water. And oh, wow. these these next two chapters really do 
like frame this idea of experiencing something you not only you have not ever experienced, but like nobody, you know, like, like nobody is like talking about. And then we're going to going to see the biggest water and we're going to be out in the middle and never see land. And um, and so this is such a terrifying idea. And. So there's this this back and forth and it and all of their com- early conversations are happening while people are screaming because they're being branded. So that is the atmosphere of their arrival onto shore. And she is scared and she gets this, you know, their power won't harm you. Like, don't worry. Mm-hmm. Like, you're with me. Um, but it really that's the only thing between her and these people is is Doral. And I'm just like. Mm, I don't know if that's great. So yeah, exactly. There's a fight, but eventually he gets to the person that he wants to meet, who is his his man. That's what he calls him. And you know, before that happens, I just want to say that we all have to get used to to Doral's shrug. Like it, it's very. I'm sure this is so intentional by Octavia, but he basically yes. has a shrug, and she literally like. And Doral shrugged and was like, mm, you know, like, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, and so yeah. he he's so casual about everything. So this guy who they've experienced, right, like he's got all of these enslaved people of all ages, they're branding them, all of this is going on. He just says, oh, I see your business is good. You know, like, <laughs> see y'all, y'all are doing well. Like, you know, he just doesn't, he doesn't care. So eventually yeah. amongst the people they find a grandson. I'm calling him a Koye. Yeah, that's right. What I said that too. feels good. Yeah, that feels good. So I'm calling mm-hmm. him a Koye. And um, she's like, no, that's, you know, that's, <laughs> you know, we can't have him like this. She's like, you know, point on this is the son of my youngest daughter. And um, these men must have raided her village. And so this is a horrific moment for her. Um, Immediately, Doral says, I will take these chains off. And he says he will he will buy him. And so there's an exchange of like what what happened to these people and her family is gone. He's alone and the others have been taken away. And this is going to probably come up a lot. But basically, when they get to this point where something happens and they say, oh, I'm here by myself, the others were taken away. This means they're gone. Like you, you can't, there's no system for like, well, where did this person go to? They're just gone. And it shows just how much, how fast, how much everybody is moving. And it's really, really sad. But they do have him and they take him away and daily walks with them. And he says he walks with them so that he can protect them from his own men. But I'm sure he knows that that Thoreau doesn't need that. But if there's this relationship where Daly wants to be with him. And we get like a lot, a lot of stories about their history and about their business and also their kind of their relationship. And Daly goes from being somebody who tries to and I'm just moving quickly through this, but he yeah. goes he goes from being somebody who would like um, try to attack Thoreau to being somebody who just wishes he could be of Doro. Like he wishes he could be one of the special people and not just himself. And eventually that leads him to, you know, just really ask, he asked several times, can I go with you? And he's like, nope, you got to stay here. And even 
when they finish all of their business, he gets on the boat and they're basically to say goodbye and, you know, do the money exchange for the kid who's not a kid. He's, it seems like he's a young man in his 20s, like early, early 20s. But they're like the boy. Mm-hmm. He still is trying to go. He's like, let me go mm-hmm. with you to the to your world. Let me do this and let me do that. And he's like, no. But there's also just this like really vile way that this man talks about these people. And there's a very yeah. interesting conversation. I'm sure you have questions about this uh, <laughs> where it's like, you know, here we are believing in God and God is this and God is that. And there's this whole thing around the cannibals. So he's just like, they're animals and they're cannibals and they're this. And and Doro says, well, no doubt the missionaries will reach them eventually and teach them to practice only symbolic cannibalism. <laughs> and he just is not like, you know, he's like not here with it. And he's like, you should say such things. Not even you are beyond the reach of God. And Doro's just like, spare me this and spare me that and your righteous indignation. And they kind of go back and forth. And Doro says, at least we cannibals are honest about what we do. Um, we don't pretend as as your slavers do to be acting for the benefit of our victims' souls. We don't tell ourselves we've caught them to teach them civilized religion. And so there we go. We all are, are very understanding of this idea of harm and civilized religion as the excuse for harm. So yes, Duro's um, ship is called the Silver Star. I really resent that. I just really. That's not nice. (laughs) That I don't want any cool names on slave ships. And there's this business about it being a smaller ship, but like a strong ship and that it gets through places where other ships can't get through. And so there's some specialness about about how the ship is moves through the waters. I'm sure Mm -hmm. we'll, we'll hear more about that. He's uh, re-investigating about his village and he's questioning um, daily about it. And he had sent him to, you know, talk to the villagers and give them a special message. And he wanted to make sure that that was done and it was done correctly. He taught him um, what to say in in a specific language and he confirms Uh that he knew what to say. I can't say enough about the village, the seed village, how important that is. This whole chapter is like giving you this beginning, you know, system of breeding and how important breeding is. He's like, he had, he had breeded these people daily, um, says they're like, you know, they had Arab blood and he remembers their looks, but uh, there also just became kind of a really intensive, um, smart, brilliant, specific and super violent kind of people and that they they had reached that place that I think Doro loves where they're not like they will kill the person next to them or they will kill the person they don't know and that they are quick to their anger but also they are highly intuitive people they could see each other's thoughts and then that way if they could tell someone had like an evil intention they could get rid of them so he this is a really important group of people to him and they are they're gone and so this is is a big deal and he and all of this talk with daily is to make sure that he is telling the truth and that he can leave him alive and leave him in charge of his business before he goes and 
we're gonna we're gonna in, um, close up this relationship with Daly, but basically, Doro has left him in really good position. He's given him like a basically land and money and all, and if and he doesn't have to do any of that. And there's an understanding like that he is the more powerful of the two of them. And Daly actually questions like why. Um, why would you do this? And why would you help me? And why? And he's just like, because he needs his system to be strong and he needs them to be good. And eventually they're on the boat and they're kind of having their last goodbye. And this fellow who is the captain, John Woodley, comes to pay for the boy. And one last time, Daly tries to say, take me with you. And he is like, nope, see you later. And there's this <laughs> And I'm saying it like that and giggling yeah. a little bit because it's just literally the way it is, is like, these are big things that are happening. And Doro is like, I'll see you like next year or two when I come back and yeah. get off my boat. And then his son is the captain. His son is jealous of the relationship between the two of them. And so we get to see that there is kind of you know, this need to be very close to him, Doro, and not want nobody else to be. And his son, you know, he doesn't like this this person. And, you know, Doro shrugs, you know. <laughs> He's like, you okay? You know, like, it's no thing to me. He says, like, he is the same. Like, Woodley knew better than Daly ever could just how much it was the same, that these relationships are the same. Like, you are a body that I produced in order to get something done that I need done. And that's yeah. all you are. And at the certain point, he's also very, very racist, this son. And this thing about animals is like, it's the worst thing you could say about a person is that to call yes. them an animal. So we end up where he just says, I suppose the new blacks you brought aboard have some special talent. And that's right, Doral says, something new. And then Woodley says, godless animals, and turns and walks away. Chapter three. Chapter three. Oof. Um, you know, I am rereading Wild Seed alongside of Robert Jones Jr.'s The Prophets. Mm. And there's something so deep about the ways we try to time travel back into looking at this, the slave, the slavery era, this particular period of the slavery era. And like, what were the interactions like, you know, like how were people humans actually dealing with each other and rereading it this time so much about like, what would you do? What would you do? What would you do? It just keeps coming to me. It's like, where are you, you know, I want to ask our readers, keep bringing yourself into the story, bring yourself into each of these characters as much as you can try to understand them as they relate to modern conditions. So a lot of the questions I have today are about that. It's like, there's a way you could read this and try to distance yourself. And I want to challenge you not to do that, mm. but to try to read this and get as intimately into each position as you can, because this is something we've lived through. And I think if we don't learn the lessons, this is something we're highly susceptible to living through again. Mm -hmm. And I think we have to pay a lot of attention. You know, this is also warning. So moving into the questions for this section, um, starting with the fact that Doro receives pleasure and is in a good mood after he has quote unquote changed bodies. 
um, I have a couple of questions about this. One is for each of us to sit with, in what ways are we selfish about our own health, pleasure, or happiness? Are there ways that taking from others, knowing that we've taken something from others, couldn't bring us joy or ever brings us joy? And just, you don't have to acknowledge it out loud, <laughs> but be honest <laughs> with yourself if there's some of that that goes on or that mm. you're aware of. And the second question I have around, around that, because it just strikes me so intensely, is what do you see as the impact of Octavia using the language of changing bodies versus killing people, taking lives, mm -hmm. right? What's actually happening? And are there places in our current political landscape where such language shifts hide the brutality of what's happening? Mm -hmm. like, that, you know, from Doro's perspective, he's changing bodies, but from the perspective of those bodies, that's the end of their lives. Each of those, each person that he jumps into, that's the end for them. And for me, the thing that left up was like calling something climate change, <laughs> but I'm like, it's climate catastrophe. It's climate <laughs> devastation. It's man-made murderous weather conditions, you know, <laughs> like, mm -hmm. but I'm like, there's so many things that we could call that that are more accurate than trying to call it climate change, which feels relatively gentle and bearable. Right? Yeah. The climate changes every day and it always has and it always yeah. will, but this is yeah. not what we're talking about. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And like when we're honest, then we have to deal with the consequences yeah. of what's actually happening. You know, I think this is one of the interesting ways where Octavia is actually like making us sit in, in what is actually pretty uncomfortable in the Doro perspective, which is like, doo -doo -doo -doo. <laughs> you know, yeah. I could care less about life, other people's lives. I just need these bodies the way yeah. other people need breath or food. So, yep. And then, you know, Anyanwu is still traveling as a man. And this is something that she does, you know, we've seen her do already. And the question it raises for me is if, if you identify as a woman, are there currently conditions that would feel safer to traverse as a man? Right. Are there, there are still conditions like that? And this question is of interest to me just because of how long ago <laughs> this is set, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, wow, surely that has changed. <laughs> but I was like, oh, I just feel like yesterday I was coming out of the gym late at night and was like, hmm, I don't feel as safe as I could feel now. And I wonder, you know, since I'm reading this, I'm like, I wonder if I would make some different choices about how I look um, and how I'm present, how I'm, how I'm perceived, you know? Then the next question and maybe we can do a little conversation around this one. Doro says to her, you only have to obey me, mm -hmm. right? Like I will protect you. You only have to obey me. And reading this, you know, he's basically offering her intimate slavery versus the impersonal slavery that the rest of her people are experiencing. And, you know, he's like, you're still going to have to obey. Like mm -hmm. everyone obeys me. And it made me think of, the radical feminist Andrea Dworkin's work um, mm. on marriage, right? Mm. That she was like marriage for most of human history, marriage has actually been a contract of disempowerment, a contract in which you were giving up your decision-making rights and power to be of total service to someone who had 
earning power that made them considered more important than you and had patriarchal power. Mm-hmm. And it feels like Anyanwu, when she's leaving her village, is starting to have some awareness that like, I need to go with this person to keep my people safe. Like there's something seriously happening here. But then this is the moment where it's really like, just so you understand, like as you look at this whole industry of power, understand that being my wife and being my slave Mm -hmm. is the only way you're actually going to make it through this. And the question I have around it is, are you aware of the ways in which you negotiate for your own power? And are there places where you have negotiated yourself into a slavery, right? Mm. Or an indentured situation or a situation in which the power imbalance is so out of whack um, that you can't actually feel your sovereignty in it. Mm. It might not be something that you're in right now. It might be something that you can remember. Like I'm like, Oh, I remember, (laughs) I remember negotiating my way out of this. Yeah. Right. But I remember being right on the edge of, of some of these dynamics. Mm. And I think we end up in them more often than we care to admit. Um, so I want people to think about that. I just want to give some thanks and praise to, you know, these early teachers I had that were like, you know, civil rights activists, yeah. um, because they, you know, started a school for the little kids in Atlanta. And they made sure we knew about like ancestors and slavery Mm. when we were little. I mean, I think I was like four or five, like really little, you know, they would tell us the stories. And I remember they had somebody come in and it was the first time I actually thought about white in a positive way because the person came and like basically was like, I'm going to give white back to you. And was like, here's red and here's black and here's green and here's white. And white is for your ancestors. White is for spirit. White is, and they made us know so hard that we were free children. Like it was like, it was Mm. and then now I understand these are like 21, 22, 23 year olds. Like they were like really young and they're like, we're going to make sure you, you know this. And it was a lot of like, no one can put their hands on you. No one should do this. No one. It was very, 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 very strong. And to this day, in almost every circumstance, if I even sense that someone's trying to take something from me or take some part of me that I think they should not have. Like when we're doing a contract, even when I feel that like, okay, I agree to show up and sing at your venue. And then when they move to, and we like to videotape it, then I'm like, why? You know, yeah. like, and then when they're like, we like the videotape and put it on line. I'm like, well, what is there extra money for that? Or what is going yeah. on? Like, yeah. I just start negotiating. Do I get to have the same rights? Like do you, how are we doing this? And I think I, and what you're saying is so, you know, questioning is so great because in the context of the story, you know, a being that has so much access to herself and is used to going through a process of almost digesting something and yes. and testing it in her own body before yes. it's it's used or before it's even offered to anyone else the process of making a decision to move yourself deep into territory that's actually obviously not safe like if 
He did nothing else except for jump in the bodies when he's scared um, and tired. That would be a no, enough reason not to move with him. That's so right. I love this question and I love this, you know, this exploration of when you have either intentionally like, you know, yes. you're saving all of this, something else and you're yes. sacrificing yourself. And yeah. I definitely know a lot of people who have taken that choice. Yeah. I definitely know a lot. I especially think about a lot of single parents in my life who have negotiated in some way Mm. with those who could be dangerous to their children and negotiated things that, that were quite sacrificial in that process. And this is the kind of thing that I'm like, I want us to get in better conversations around this, like about where we give away our power, where we negotiate away our power and what are the real choices, which is a question that throughout this chapter and I'll come to it a couple of different ways. But I'm like, what were the options? What were the options? Mm -hmm. What were the actual options? So the next question I have here, you know, because part of the thing that is offered with daily is that he thought he had made a deal with the devil. He was like, I think this is the devil. Yeah. (laughs) Like, I think that's what's happening. And who do you think right now, if you look at our political landscape, who's in a deal with the devil? Who, honey? <laughs> yes. Who Ooh. Who is it? Make a map or a list, but get get clear. You know, you can look at your local landscape. You can look at our federal landscape. You can look at our global landscape, especially those who really espouse belief in the devil and really espouse belief in God. Have a look-see. <laughs> mm, Have a good. look-see. Yeah. I think it helps us navigate the landscape better together when we know who's who's opted into it. And perhaps related, do you know what's meant by symbolic cannibalism? And I love this because, you know, I was definitely a kid raised in the church where we did the <laughs> those little cardboard little wafers, Mm-hmm. The cardboard wafers and the wine, you know, and, and that level of like symbolic cannibalism. But I also felt even more implied there. <laughs> and so just curious for people, like, do you practice anything that you would see that way or interpret that way? And what do you think about it? Mm-hmm. And then how do you process Anyanwu's fear as a reader knowing how powerful she is, how strong she is, how much she can do, how does her fear land on you? Does it help you understand the institution of slavery in any different ways? I love this expression of her fear and yeah, because she is seeing things she's never seen before. And whatever she is, she's still like a, has access to the full spectrum of of how she is made so that, you know, they're not in conflict with each other. Like, it's like, okay, yes, I can do all of this healing inside my body, but that's not in conflict with me being someone who has feelings and someone who is observant. And maybe it's even stronger for her because she has so much, you know, she has so much resources to feel and to... You know, I wonder what she's taking in, like every time she she smells something or she sees something because she's always collecting, you know, exactly. you know, so I love that she's afraid and that it's it's very like, you know, I'm not saying simple because it's not something to be afraid, but it's not like this whole, 
you know, narrative that she shaped herself into this thing and she used this part of her body to block these senses and she did this and she did that. To, you know, it's just like she rolled up on something and she was like, this is not, this is wrong and this is horrible and I'm afraid. Like, yes. you know, and just like, just regular, like, I'm, I don't care if I can shape my body into animals. Like, I'm afraid. Yes. And I interpret this too as one of the ways we understand that Anyanwu thinks collectively, mm-hmm. right? So even though she has these superpowers in herself, I mean, like in that moment, could shapeshift into a bird and fly away, you know, shapeshift into a cheetah or something and go. She's looking at her grandson. She's looking at her family, her people, her, her land. And she's understanding at a collective level, there's no escaping this because her heart is the heart of a collective. And that feels so important to me that it doesn't matter how far we get individually. If we aren't free, we aren't free. Right. Mm. And this was something that happened to us. So I love that Octavia shows that that's like the fear is not just in her personal thing about like, how do I navigate this? It's about us. And I think that's really important. I always wonder, like, at the very beginning, like, when this system started, what those people thought was going to happen. Yeah. You know, I think about that all the time. Because did we think, oh, this is something that happened today. That's terrible. Like, you know, a month later, oh, it's, you know, like, (laughs) like, it's, I just, I think about it all the time. Like, I think about it too. I mean, like that's, I love the, the big water framing and, but just all of it. And again, like the unknown, the level of unknown, you know, we take for granted how much we know right Mm -hmm. now and how much we can both remember and anticipate the horrors that we're up against. And like, even as new things unfold, even as this plague has unfolded, there's a sense of knowing like, oh, we're heading into a plague. You know what I'm saying? There's mm-hmm. a sense of knowing like this, this terror that's coming to us is not completely unfamiliar, even if it's overwhelming. And the fact that our ancestors had to do this without any knowing, like we don't know what will happen in the next moment. We don't know how we'll survive this. We don't know where we're going to go. Mm-hmm. I think all the time about also one of your mom's songs or a song I think of as hers that I remember I don't know how people, yeah, because I'm like, I don't know how they survived slavery, but I am here. So I believe, you know, (laughs) like, um, yeah, Uh, I love that song. I I remember, I believe, and that's definitely one of her her songs. Yeah. Yeah. That's a necessary song. (laughs) It's a necessary song. So Next question I have here is this chapter unveils so much like this is character building for Doro. This is, you know, unveiling and unveiling, unveiling just who Doro is. And she's already had the experience of being both scared by him Mm -hmm. and also made love with him and been curious about him, been intrigued by him. But now I think is the first time that she really starts to understand his nature, watching Mm -hmm. him, seeing him. So what does this chapter teach you? teach all of us about Doro's nature. Mm-hmm. What is unveiled here about his plans? 
what do you observe about the relationships he has with others? Yeah. Mm. Really track and pick up as much as you can about Doro. And if you can really notice all the seeds, all the, all the indications you're getting about who Doro is. And I think hold on to those as tightly as you can, because Doro will continue to be a complex character. There's everything, everything, everything is in Doro, but I know, and I'm saying this to myself, <laughs> that it can, he's so horrible that it makes you want to forget how horrible he is. Mm-hmm. And I want you to really study it and remember. And then a question related to this, when they're telling us about what happens with the, the community that Doro has created and the kind of people they end up being. I had this thought, you know, I was just like, oh my God, like, what if we're all experiments of different <laughs> godlings? <laughs> and they're all like, you know, I'm reading and, you know, this is what we've come up with so far. I always think that when I read this, but then particularly I think about his seed, did Doro's seed stand a chance at empathy, mm-hmm. at collectivity, at happiness, right? And expanding that, do people who are bred by cruelty have a chance to reclaim themselves, Mm -hmm. to reclaim their humanity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There you go. Now, daily. What is the modern equivalent of a daily? Who is the modern equivalent of a daily? What are the jobs that are modern equivalents of the role that he was playing for Doro and in the operation of slavery. Mm-hmm. Can you understand his motivations, right? Or at least name his motivations. Like what is driving this man? He feels very mysterious to me, but I think we need to try to figure out like what drives people like this? <laughs> Cause I feel like they end up shaping and compromising so much of our humanity. I just immediately thought about wall street. Yes. You know, because I'm always like all of these people jump into the game and they all can't be millionaires and they all can't be. And then there's one dude at the top who gets like of a company and gets like a gazillion dollars a year. And even if he does something horrible, he's automatically gets a buyout of a gazillion dollars. (laughs) Exactly. And everybody's just like, let me see if I can become that one person. I want to be like that. I want to be like that. that. Yeah. Right. Because it's like, if you can't be good, you can be powerful, Mm -hmm. right? And if you can't be the top, you want to be as close to it as you can be. Mm -hmm. You know, Octavia talked about it in in Lilith's Fruit series, which we'll get to eventually in this journey, but that that fatal combination of hierarchy and intelligence that we use our intelligence to constantly be better than, better than, better than. And this feels like it's really related to that. Like he's, he's like, I want to be better than. There's also... What is the assessment of those who uphold these operations? Do we see that they have other options? Do we believe that they have other options? Mm. You know, I think about corrections officers. I think about police officers. I think mm-hmm. about those you know, who see a, a woman being brought in from a prison and shackled to a bed um, to give birth. And you know, there's these, I'm like, these are all the same people. <laughs> these are all right. the same kinds of people. How do we assess and how do we intervene on on that disconnect from humanity? At this point in the reading, 
what would you say is Octavia's perspective on organized religion? <laughs> it's one of her very favorite topics. So if you're going to be reading Octavia, you're going to be in a, in a critical relationship with it. Yes. Um, so how would you describe it currently? And then my final question in response to godless animals, you know, the way that Woodley speaks about Anyanwu and Okoye, you know, the language of supremacy often shows up as a direct reaction to jealousy, right? To seeing someone who can do things you can't do and being like, here's the way, you know, this is, this is how whiteness was created was to have a way to be better than, mm -hmm. right? Do you recognize that behavioral pattern in current life? Do you see it play out in our communities? Do you see it play out on social media? Do you see it play out on national media? Like, do you see this pattern of moving to insult that which you cannot overcome? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And those are my questions. Those are great questions. They're deep. Yeah. They're deep. Yeah. She they gives have their us a own. lot to work with here. You've created a, a really cool pattern with these, with these questions to follow. Yeah. yeah. I felt like I was like, ooh, this is an acupunctural chapter, if that's mm -hmm. a word, right? Like, I feel like she's really just like, let me let mm -hmm. me help you adjust yourself um, in terms of how how to navigate this this story. So thank you, Octavia. Right? Thank We're you, just Octavia. getting started. Yeah. Octavia's Parables is hosted by myself, Adrian Marie Brown and Toshi Regan. Our show art is from Krista Franklin. We are transcribed by Jess Pinkham, and you can find us on Twitter at OParables or on patreon.com slash OParables if you want to support the show. Transcripts for all episodes are always at readingoctavia.com. Oh, and the music for the show is You Don't Know the Time, written and performed by Toshi Regan, and the Sower song. Uh, written by Bernice Johnson Regan and performed by the cast of Octavia E. Butler's Parable of the Sower. See you next time. Bye. A sower went out to sow her seed. A sower went out to sow her seed.